From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll speak with a politics writer about the Republican Party and how he hopes his newsletter will lead to less division. The last couple of years have really forced me to think about, am I really uh, looking at the other side and, and seeing what they're thinking and what they're feeling and what they're experiencing? We'll talk with former Bucks general manager Wayne Embry, the first black man to hold the position in NBA history. Plus, the latest episode of our Live at Lake Effect music series goes country with actress and musician Lola Kirk. There's something really fun about playing like a, a Jewish cowgirl, which is the half Jewish cowgirl, which is kind of what I'm doing now in my in my role as country singer. All that's coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Like Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us. Wisconsin's legislative voting districts are going to look different for the November election. That's because yesterday, Governor Tony Evers signed new maps into law after the Republican-controlled legislature passed them last week to avoid the liberal-controlled state Supreme Court drawing their own maps. Wisconsin's maps were considered among the most gerrymandered in the country, and in a ruling late last year, the state Supreme Court found them unconstitutional. For the last couple of weeks, we've been doing weekly updates on what's happening with redistricting. You'll hear the final segment this Thursday, where we'll dive into what the new maps will look like. In the meantime, you can find out more on our Redistricting Live blog at wuwm.com. For some, election years mean a massive onslaught of political ads and negativity. For others, it can mean an opportunity for change. No matter where you fall on the state of politics, we're all weighing how to approach this election year. You may be seeing animosity and echo chambers on social media, gridlock in Washington, and it's affecting both casual observers of politics as well as those who dedicate their professions to it. James Wigderson was one of the latter. He's a former editor of RightWisconsin.com, a conservative-leaning news site. Before that, he was a columnist for the Waukesha Freeman. Wigderson now writes a newsletter called Life Under Construction. It's a place to find Wigderson's thoughts and storytelling on all the nuances of life, because, as he writes, readers deserve more than a talking head with a partisan political agenda. He speaks with WUWM's Mayan Silver about his decision to expand his focus and his wishes for politics and our collective humanity. So, James, in a previous conversation, you told me, as someone who has long identified as a Republican, after January 6th, you felt like a sports writer who covers football and the team moves out on you. There's no one to root for. Can you talk about how you got to that place and what it feels like? So uh, how I got to that place was um, I had been a conservative or and a Republican for most of my uh, adult life. I go back to being a college Republican at the same time that Scott Walker was a college Republican at Marquette and Robin Voss was a college Republican at UW-Whitewater. I was a college Republican at UW-Milwaukee. Uh, give you an idea of how long this has been. So when Donald Trump came down that escalator in 2016 i was like whoa this is uh, or 2015 this is a this is a, a change in in the trend towards conservatism the paul ryan conservatism the 
William F. Buckley conservatism that I grew up with and, and endorsed. And by the time we got to the 2020, 2021, all my fears had been fulfilled. I, I felt completely alienated from the movement that I had given so much to and supported for so long. And uh, suddenly when January 6th happened, you thought maybe for a moment that there'd be a course correction that the, the Republican Party would suddenly realize that that Trumpism wasn't the future. And then all of a sudden, one by one, they all came right back into the fold. And I realized that there were there were no more Republicans that uh, I supported and they no longer supported the ideas that I still believed in. My views haven't changed, but apparently the Republican Party has. Uh, I don't have a home in the Democratic Party. So, like I said, I'm kind of like the sports writer who suddenly discovers, hey, the uh, local team has now moved on me and I have nobody to nobody to, to be the cheerleader for. actually thought of myself as, as rather a sharp critic at times of my own side. But I, at least I had a side. Had you been supportive of former President Donald Trump during his presidency? And if so, can you talk about why that changed beyond January 6th? No, actually, uh, when Donald Trump ran for office in 2016, I was one of those that said I could never support Donald Trump. Uh, I recognized right away what a, what a change that he was presenting to the Republican Party. And... Uh, Certainly, there was no way that I could ever support him. Um, what I tried to do, I was the editor of Right Wisconsin, and therefore I was speaking to conservatives, and I had a conservative audience. What I tried to do was steer a course of, if it happened in Wisconsin, then I would write about it. If it happened elsewhere, we wouldn't, we wouldn't worry about it. Um, that came to a crashing end during the 2020 election when it became clear that there was no escaping from the effects of Trumpism, even on the local statewide party or the locals. Um, the, the Republican Party of Waukesha changed. The Republican Party of Wisconsin changed to all to accommodate the, the new Trumpist philosophy of power in itself is, is its own good. So one way you're coping with what you see as this sort of degradation of the Republican Party is by sounding the alarm, writing op-eds in, in newspapers and with CNN and things like that. But you're also turning to sort of all the different facets of life, thinking beyond politics with your blog, Life Under Construction. Can you tell us about that? Right. So what I'm doing is I'm writing about the other things that are important in your life, the, the things that should matter to you. Politics should not be the all-consuming passion of everybody that, that it has become. You cannot just run your life on whether or not somebody is in political office. Donald Trump being in office should not be the, the end all of your life. You have a family. You have a religion. You have uh, children that you have to take to school. You have things that you do for your family hopefully for fun outside of politics. Uh, I like to travel, for example, and I write about traveling quite a bit. I write about the dogs that I, I've raised. I've, I write about what it's like to send my 
my two kids off into college. And soon I'm going to be an empty nester. My wife and I are going to be living on our own. And I want to write about that, what that experience is like. What it's like to have parents that got old and sick. And what it was like to take care for a father who had Alzheimer's. Those are the things that are, were of such immediate concern that at times I had to step back from writing about politics. And I'm glad that I, I have now. You're tuned into Lake Effect. I'm Mayan Silver, speaking with James Wigderson, author of the twice-weekly newsletter, Life Under Construction. I've been thinking a lot about politics and the political climate, too, in this election year. I think a lot of us have. And I was listening to the podcast. It's called On Being recently. And something that one of their guests said really stood out. Uh, he's an author and philosopher named Alain de Botton. And he said that a functioning society requires love and politeness, a capacity to, quote, enter imaginatively into the minds of people with whom you don't immediately agree. So I was wondering, is your writing with life under construction sort of like a way to bridge that gap of collective misunderstanding that seems to exist in this country, like an olive branch to all sorts of people in the complexities of our lives? Yeah, I, that's that's a good way of looking at it. I, I've been meditating a lot on the Sermon of the Mount and, and, and Jesus telling us all to to love each other, whether you're Christian or not. He said to not only to, to love our neighbors, but to love our enemies. And it's made me stop and think quite a bit about crossing that divide, just not having enemies, or at least having that dialogue with people that I wouldn't normally have a dialogue with to have that experience and to understand what's going on on the other side. I thought that I've always done that as an adult, but the last couple of years have really forced me to think about, am I really uh, looking at the other side and, and seeing what they're thinking and what they're feeling and what they're experiencing? We aren't in the other person's shoes, but we should at least try to see what they're seeing and what they're experiencing. And have you found that in that in a way you're choosing humanity over politics? Oh, definitely. Uh, I'm choosing humanity over politics. The fact that uh, we're all individual people, that we all have individual goals, that that we're not all monsters, that we that we aren't the worst things that we. Uh, think of each other and part part of the thing that i've always said is is that when you think the absolute worst about the other person it justifies everything that you do that's awful too and so what we need to do is to start thinking of each other as individual human beings and recognizing that that what we're what we're facing that person is is got goals and dreams and ambitions and they may be different than ours, and they may be in conflict with ours, but that's the whole point of what politics should be about, is the peaceful resolution of those conflicts. And instead, we've, we've lined up in, in tribalism of reds and blues, and power in itself has become its own good. And that's a frightening thing. When we stop thinking of each other as individuals, and we just see them as that other thing, then that's, like I said, it justifies every nasty thing that you can do to defeat that other thing. 
And where's your optimism for Wisconsin and for this country in terms of our ability to to accomplish that, really? So I'm mixed. Uh, as far as my optimism and pessimism goes, my, my wife will tell you, the lovely Doreen will tell you that uh, I'm quite a pessimist. Um, I am too much of a student of history to not be a pessimist about things. I, I understand how the Roman Republic fell, uh, how politics crashed in France so many times and, and French republics fell and the spirit of Vichy that has, has amazingly just washed over the Republican Party. It's, it's hard not to be a pessimist. On the other hand, I'm still an optimist because this is still America. Excuse me. This is still America. I'm, I'm still an optimist. And I, I, I believe that we have, we have a way of correcting when we, when we need to. We've gone through periods like this before. Woodrow Wilson used to throw his opponents in jail during World War I and at the end of World War I with the Palmer raids. Uh, we've gone through periods where uh, we've been really divided and, we've, and yet we've still managed to sort things out like we did in 1876, like we did in 2000. Being a democracy gives us that opportunity to, to work things out democratically rather than the way other countries have by just falling apart and having riots in the street and the bloodshed and the violence and, and political chaos that other countries have descended into. We have a way of sorting out who we are and what our direction for the future is. And I believe that we can still do that. Well, I hope you're right, uh, James. And, um, Thank you so much for sharing this and your work with Life Under Construction. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me on. James Wigderson is a former editor of WriteWisconsin.com and former columnist for the Waukesha Freeman. He now writes a newsletter called Life Under Construction. He spoke with WUWM's Mayan Silver. What are you thinking and feeling ahead of the November presidential election? You can have a say in our 2024 election coverage by filling out our election survey. You can find a link to that at wuwm.com. What you tell us will help inform the stories you hear on Lake Effect and WUWM. In about 10 minutes, we'll hear from former Bucks general manager Wayne Embry, the first black man to hold the position in NBA history. The media asked me what I thought about being the first, and I remember saying that I realized that I am the first they said, well, you see any significance in that? And I said, it's only that it's significant to others. And I hope not to last. But first, we'll learn about some of the notable black figures who are buried in Milwaukee's Forest Home Cemetery. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. In honor of Black History Month, let's look at some historical black figures who you can visit at Forest Home Cemetery. 
Forest Home is Milwaukee's oldest cemetery, and it's also one of the oldest cemeteries to allow anyone, no matter what race or religion, to be buried on the grounds. Volunteer docent Sally Merrill and I spoke in 2022 to learn about a few of the cemetery's notable black residents. So you're a volunteer tour guide at Forest Home Cemetery. What drew you to this work? Um, I've always liked history. I didn't grow up in Milwaukee, so I figured being a tour guide at Forest Home would help me learn Milwaukee history, which was correct. And I've always loved cemeteries, and there's a word for people like me called taphophile. So if you, there's a lot of us out there, though, we don't always recognize each other. <laughs> That's a new word I wasn't familiar with. Thanks for sharing that. So today we are going to take advantage of the knowledge you've gained giving tours throughout Forest Home Cemetery. And we're going to talk about Black Wisconsinites that are buried at Forest Home uh, for people to learn more about and to visit in honor of Black History Month. So to start, let's uh, talk about Ezekiel Gillespie. Who was he? Ezekiel Gillespie was probably born a slave in Tennessee or Georgia. His father was probably a slave owner. He managed to make his way, buy his freedom and make his way to have a store in Evanston, Evansville, Indiana. And then he moved to Milwaukee around 1850, where he set up another store. And he did a lot for Milwaukee. He's honored still today. I have, one of the things he did was he was present for the rescue of Joshua Glover. Ezekiel Gillespie also um, was important in the group of people that got the vote to, for Black men in Wisconsin. The Civil War ended in 1865. There was a November election that year, and he, uh, his friend Sherman Booth, who's a key player in abolition, abolitionist movement in Milwaukee and Wisconsin, said, Ezekiel, why don't you try and vote? I, I have a sense it was all kind of set up for reasons I'll go into a minute, but they go and Ezekiel is not allowed to vote. And lo and behold, Sherman Booth has a lawyer ready to take the case the next day. And they make their way to the Wisconsin Supreme Court pretty quickly. And the Wisconsin Supreme Court decides in like February or March of 66. So again, that's four or five months, which is very fast. That yes, black men do have the right to vote in Wisconsin based on interpretation of amendments to the Wisconsin Constitution as it was being voted on by the voters as Wisconsin became a, a state. So black men got the right to vote in Wisconsin in 1866, which is four or five years before nationwide black men got the right to vote. So the next notable figure we have to learn about is Lewis Hughes. Can you share more about Lewis? Lewis Hughes was born into slavery in 1832. And the reason why he's uh, significant today is he survived slavery, became a free man. He ended up spending his adult a lot of his adult life living and working in Milwaukee. And he wrote a book called 30 Years a Slave. That's how it's often referred to, but to show you what a remarkable book is, I wanna read the whole title. 30 Years a Slave from Bondage to Freedom, the Institution of Slavery as Seen on the Plantation and in the Home of the Planter. It's a remarkable book to read by a remarkable man uh, talking about his faith, the terrible things that happened to him and his wife. As you said, he tried to escape five times the last time he escaped, he came back to get his wife. It was the end of the war, and some two Union soldiers helped pull off that escape. And despite all this, I'll tell you one of the more amazing stories from the book is how he learned to read and write. He was a clearly very smart man, but he learned to read from the slave who lived in the, uh, took care of the horses and lived in the stable. 
because that slave had more freedom of action and scope and he could go out at night and no one would know where Lewis had to sleep in the owner's home. So that uh, man taught Lewis to read. That man made his way to Canada and was able to send a letter back saying I'm free, which gave great hope to the slaves who were left behind. Next, we have William T. Green. Uh, William T. Green uh, was born in Canada, made his way as a young man to Madison, where he got a job as a janitor in state capital, and put himself through the University of Wisconsin-Madison Law School, probably the first Black man to become a lawyer in the state of Wisconsin. He spent his adult life in Milwaukee. He came, he set up a legal practice, and he devoted his life to using the fact that black men could vote and, and black people should have more freedom after the Civil War to fight for rights for black people in Wisconsin. The highlight of his career from my perspective would have been when he was totally involved in all the efforts that got Wisconsin to enact a Wisconsin Civil Rights Act, which became the law in 1895. The fight to make this happen took several years, took a lot of people, but he was front and center the whole time. And that made it that prevented a discrimination in public accommodations in Wisconsin for Black people. Up next, we have Mabel Watson Ramey. Can you share more about her? Mabel Watson Ramey was born in 1898, and she died in 1986. I think she's remarkable for everything she accomplished, and she did it pretty much by herself after fighting barrier and problems along the way. She, as a teenager, said she wanted to be a doctor. She was convinced by many to say, no, you can't be a doctor. Women can't be doctors. It's just too hard for women to be doctors. She then um, got a BA from UW-Madison, first Black woman to do that. And she came back to Milwaukee with the goal of becoming a teacher. She got hired as a teacher in MPS and then fired three days later when the principal had found out that she was Black. From that story, you can guess that she has um, some white ancestors and it's not clear to people that she was a black person, except when someone, they didn't know that looking at her, but then they told she's black, it's okay, you're fired. So she can't be a doctor because she's a woman. She can't be a, a school teacher because she's black. So she decides to become a lawyer. She gets a job as a legal secretary. She puts herself through Marquette Law School going at night and when she came out of Marquette Law School, first black woman to graduate uh, from law school in the state of Wisconsin. And the second one, Belle Phillips, was almost 50 years later, to show you how far ahead of her time Mabel Watson Ramey was. She couldn't find a job. So she got a job as a legal secretary, which is how she'd put herself through law school, but she's back as a legal secretary. And I think from that position, she was able to gain the trust and respect and started getting cases and ultimately had her own law firm and, and a a long time practicing law in Milwaukee. Well, these are just a few of the many notable people buried in Forest Home Cemetery. For today, I want to thank you so much for sharing more. Thank you for having me. Sally Merrill is a volunteer docent at Forest Home Cemetery in Milwaukee. We spoke in 2022. In 1972, a Milwaukee man became the first black general manager of a pro sports team. The Milwaukee Bucks chose Wayne Embry for the job, replacing Ray Patterson, who left to join the Houston Rockets. 
Embry was a distinguished player in college at Miami of Ohio and in the NBA. He went on to be recognized with numerous honors as an NBA executive and is now in the Basketball Hall of Fame. And he's still in the NBA, serving as a senior advisor to the Toronto Raptors. Embry tells WUWM's Chuck Kornbach that a lot of his success is owed to his family and school experience. Well, I grew up on a farm in rural Clark County outside of Springfield. And uh, I went to uh, junior high school. There were very few African-Americans in school. then, And then I went to uh, high school and I was the only African-American student in school. And I uh, was on the brink of quitting. I tried to quit high school and my grandfather, and, who was a patriarch of our family, and my parents said, no, you're not, you've gone back to school. And so I uh, continued on and uh, I was fortunate to have a coach by the name of Frank Shannon who took an interest in me and gave me protection throughout uh, my high school years and encouraged me to keep up my basketball skills and rest history after that. I read in the book, uh, your biography, The Inside Game, uh, written with Mary Schmidt, Boyer, that you wanted to belong. Uh, is that fair to say? Yes. It's kind of a shy kid, kind of estranged from the rest of the uh, students. There were several students who did embrace me, and uh, I did want to belong because uh, my parents always told me I always tried to be the best and make an impression, and there will be resistance, but just continue on and be the best you can be at whatever you attempt to do. And that's what I did. You know, I want to be the best basketball player on the team, and I want to be the best student in the classroom. So that's kind of how I got through high school. And then, of course, you went on to college uh, with success, and certainly in the National Basketball Association after uh, much success with Cincinnati and the Boston Celtics. You came to Milwaukee in what they called the expansion draft as the Bucks selected players from other teams in their, as they were getting going. What were your first impressions of the city, and uh, how did those change over time, did they? Yeah, I played there in college, and one of those Milwaukee days, uh, being in the low teens and even below zero at night, and I, I could just remember the snow and cold, and I said, I don't want to go to Milwaukee. But, you know, Milwaukee reached out to me and made it welcoming for me to come there. And then I came out to training camp alone and went through training camp. And then after training camp, I went back to get my family. We had rented a place from uh, one of the owners of the Bucks had an apartment complex in Oak Creek. And that evening we drove in, it was close to election time. And we saw these Wallace President signs in the window. My wife says, where are you bringing me? I said, oh my God, I never seen these before. And I said, well, we, we've been to the place here. We'll see what happens. You were talking about George Wallace, the Alabama governor and a harsh segregationist who was running for president his first time in 1968. It sounds like you found some folks who were much more interested in multiculturalism. It turned out some of the neighbors in the building embraced us, made us feel comfortable, and 
So we made our way through that year and it was a great year. Ownership was terrific and management was terrific. Of course, Larry Costello, I knew from having played against him. And so he was terrific. And so we were made to be welcomed and uh, we had a nice run in Milwaukee. Then after your last year as an active player with the Bucks, you joined uh, the front office. Uh, why that route as opposed to going into private business or coaching? Uh, why, why the front office? When I got sent to Milwaukee in the expansion draft, the director of recreation for the city of Boston had resigned, and the commissioner and the mayor thought that I'd be a good person to uh, run the recreation department for the city. So uh, they held a job for me. So when I retired, I went back as director of recreation for the city and I did color commentary on the Celtic radio to stay involved in basketball. And so I had no intention of uh, coming back to Milwaukee or anywhere in the NBA because I didn't think it possible at the time. But I also, uh, while being director of recreation, got to know the McDonald's people in, in the area and they, uh, suggested that I might be eligible for a franchise and on a bright Saturday afternoon I get a call from Wes Pavlon, the owner of the Bucks, and he says, Wayne, I'm in Boston and I want to come by and visit you. So he came by the house and we visited for a while and he says, I want you to come back to Milwaukee in the front office. I said, well, I had thought about that. And so we talked for a little while longer and my wife was, became engaged in the conversation. She looked at me and said, Wayne, why don't we? I said, okay, Wes, we're interested. He said, terrific. And he said, no, by the way, he said, uh, we are negotiating a trade for Oscar Robertson. I said, oh my God, that's terrific. He said, if you could give us any help there by giving him a call, we'd appreciate it. Of course, he knew Oscar and I were roommates when we played for the Cincinnati Royals. And so he thought that I might have some influence. I did call Oscar, but he, um, he makes his own mind up. And uh, he was interested in going to Milwaukee. And I said, that's terrific. Uh, and so uh, we both wound up in Milwaukee. And of course, Wes, during that time, he says, what do you think of doing that trade? And I said, I think it would be an instant championship with Ben Lewis and Bobby Dandridge and some of the other young players, they said, I think it would be an interesting team and a championship team. And it all worked out. Indeed. And it was carried Milwaukee through a lot of decades after that. You know, about a year after the championship, uh, the Bucks won the 71 championship or won in 71. About a year after that, and almost 50 years ago to this day, uh, you were named general manager of the Bucks, the first black general manager in North American sports is generally regarded. What were your thoughts on that day? Well, again, I was kind of shocked because I got a call from Wes and he says, I want you in my office at four o'clock. I said, what's, what's, what's up? He says, we'll talk when you get there. So I was a little bit nervous. I thought maybe I was going to be fired. So I go over there at his office and I sit down, a couple of his, uh, advisors were in the room and he says, uh, you're the new general manager in Milwaukee Bucks. And I just sat there, I didn't respond one way or the other. I just sat there because I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And so finally I said, well, what, what, what happened to Ray Patterson? He said, he's going to Houston. Of course, I knew none of that was happening. 
So it was a shock to me. So we'll talk about the details later, give us some thought. So I went home, told my wife, and she said, oh my God, that's terrific. And the media asked me what I thought about being the first. And I downplayed that at the time as well. I remember saying that I realized that I am the first. And they said, well, you see any significance in that? And I said, it's only that it's significant to others. And I hope I'm not the last. When it came time that Lou Alcindor, who had become Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, wanted uh, to leave Milwaukee, you helped engineer the trade of him to the Lakers that really kept the Bucks very competitive for the next decade. Yeah, we, we did negotiate the trade, Bill Alverson and I. And uh, that, of course, was after trying to keep Kareem there. I recall a meeting with the ownership and uh, they asked me, what, what, what do you think? They said, we've tried everything to change his mind. What do you think? And I said, well, I don't think we're going to change his mind. I think what we should do is uh, grant him his wish because he gave us some great years, championship, and out of respect to him, we should grant his wish. He's not going to be content here and he'll leave as a free agent eventually. So why don't we grant him his wish? You went on to other teams uh, after a while and uh, had success, especially with the Cleveland Cavaliers. There were, of course, some ugly moments then from letters and threats and so on. What kept you going through all that? Given my background, I grew up and I just always remember what my parents and my family would tell me. You got to persevere through a lot to be successful. And so... I, uh, of course, was concerned about some of the threats and that that I got then, and I still get it occasionally. I uh, just decided that I'd have to persevere through it. That's part of the landscape, I guess, and it comes with success. So I feel proud. So I have a great deal of pride in whatever they've been able to do. And if I look back 60-plus years in the NBA, I feel blessed. And I hope it's an inspiration for a lot of young people. How would you grade pro sports in recent years on their efforts to add people of color as coaches or front office executives? Well, we've made a lot of progress, and I think the NBA has been at the forefront. And I can't really speak to other sports, it's only what I read and see. But I've always regarded sports as being an opportunity for people to come together. I think that uh, we come together to, for a winning cause and establish that mutual respect in the locker room, on the court, or on the field. Uh, a lot of good things can come out of that. And I look at the fans in the stands. You know, NBA arena that's sold out under normal circumstances. And so sports has been a great bastion for bringing people together. And I wish the greater society would continue that and we all come together with uh, mutual respect for one human to another human and eliminate hatred. And I think uh, that's the way I try to conduct myself in all the areas of sports I've been involved in as a player in the front office. And, you know, we just got to keep working at it. And I'd like to see more, obviously, uh, people succeed. And I wish there were a time, Mike, where you wouldn't be labeled. 
and just go out and hire the best person available. And I did want to, before we part, I wanted to ask you, does that advice apply to beyond sports as well? Or, or what, as an elder with a lot of years of experience and distinguished accomplishments, your advice to younger people or maybe for our audience, the parents of younger people as to how to succeed? Yes, I think it goes beyond sports because, you know, there are only so many jobs in sports. And I think uh, look at the other professions, the corporate community, I think that there has to be room for advancement in all. And I say that, of course, academics has been a big part of my life. I, I uh, encourage young people to be the best they can be in the classroom. And if they are engaged in sports, on the field or on the court, but I, I think it starts in the classroom. The more knowledge you can gain and advance you to whatever you want to be. Wayne Embry is the former general manager of the Milwaukee Bucks, the first black GM in pro sports history. He spoke to WUWM's Chuck Kornbach in 2022. We'll take one more break and then return with some music and a chat with Lola Kirk for our latest in our Live at Lake Effect series. Keep listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Live at Lake Effect is our music series featuring local and nationally touring artists performing in the Lake Effect Surf Shop in Shorewood. We brought the Lake Effects together, along with Visionary Studios, to showcase musicians once a month, starting with an interview with the band, airing exclusively here on Lake Effect. Today, we have country artist Lola Kirk, who's accompanied by Josh Kaler. This is a song about why I left L.A., and it's called All My Exes Live in L.A. First came old sunglasses inside Then the one who wouldn't let me drive Then along came the one with the long hair Just like mine Then the one with the cowboy hat Rhinestones and all of that Then the one with the suit and tie a little too nice, so I had to say bye. I'm peacing out and adios in. A couple of them I'm just ghosting. All my exes live in LA. That's why I'm on this freeway. Running from the city like a bat out of Beverly Hills. All my exes live in LA. So I'm a straight through the mountains or the desert or my mama's or anywhere else I don't mind the traffic or the haze the sun shining every day California's oh so sweet them it has been good to me but it's time to say goodbye to that old Hollywood sign and if you 
This is Audrey Nowakowski from Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. We're here at the Lake Effect Surf Shop in Shorewood, along with Milwaukee musician Trapper Shep, who's also my fellow Live at Lake Effect co-producer. Hey, Trapper. Yes, I am, Audrey. We have a terrific singer-songwriter here all the way from Nashville, Tennessee, Milwaukee. Here I come from Nashville, Tennessee. Sort Absolutely. Of uh, classic country. I haven't seen Lola Kirk since probably like 2011. Both our bands were playing near Bard College, yes. I believe, in upstate New York, or perhaps it was Hudson, New York. And as, as it happens, I lost track of you. And then in 2014, I was watching a movie called Gone Girl. I saw someone that looked a lot like you. And then two years later, I was watching a movie called, uh, what is it? Mistress, Mistress America. America with Greta Gerwig. So I love her and her filmmaking. And I was like, oh, that's definitely her. And then I went back and saw Gone Girl. And I was like, oh, Lola's an like, uh, actress now. And I knew you as a terrific musician. Oh, Which I, leads I'm me, so honored. Yeah, leads me to my first question. Uh, music or acting first and how does each one feed into each other well i began my career as a, as an actress um and i always thought that's what i would do more of music was always just such a passion and a hobby i love listening to music um and i always have but i do find it very empowering to get to write my own roles as a musician so to speak like i feel like I got cast a lot as like assistants <laughs> um, and like girls in glasses, which I don't wear glasses. And I love playing women who wear glasses because, you know, there's a lot there. But I do <laughs> think that um, there's something really fun about playing like a, 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 a Jewish cowgirl, which is the half Jewish cowgirl, which is kind of what I'm doing now in my in my role as country singer. What was the role in Gone Girl again? What were oh, you? Oh, like, she didn't wear glasses. She just had herpes. She, like, pretty, she had like a cold sore on her lip. Pretty sketchy character. Correct? Yeah, okay. uh, that. So I, those are like the two ends of the spectrum. Totally. Like, like yeah. assistant in glasses and like girl who will beat you up. You can see why I like didn't completely put it together that that was you because it was like it was like Lola Kirk but like rough around the edges. Not that you right. didn't look, you know. No, no, no. I think girl, somewhere in between those two women. 
is the is the true me, and that is what I'm expressing through my music. Totally. Well, thank <laughs> you for being here in this surf shop. Oh, this is thank just you. So random, but but feels great. I love it. Like, I love singing to all of this surf gear. Yeah. Yeah. Especially that the LA tune because it's like we're surfing but exactly. we're, we're also country but i feel like know? when you live in la unless you live like by the beach right, it's so right. like exactly. i never even saw the beach when i lived there mm. too busy so far no it's just like miles away that's true yeah yeah it's an endeavor it is an yeah endeavor. so you touched upon a little bit and i imagine when you're acting obviously there's a lot of other people and factors into play there's a whole crew there's a director you're deferring to you have um, to get a job. You have to get a job yeah. to begin with. <laughs> and uh, when you're playing and writing your songs, you're taking more of that leadership role. So can you touch a bit more upon how, not necessarily that you get into the character of a Jewish cowgirl, but <laughs> you know, when do you feel that need to, to switch over to the country singing? And you know, which, which one, like, do you bother balancing them out? Or do you, at this point, know what, what your preference is and, and what you want to spend your creative yeah, time towards? I mean, I think I was always doing music, like, 30%, and I was acting a lot more. I mean, it's a much more lucrative career if you can... It's nice work if you can get it, being an actress. But, um, and, and music, uh, I don't think you make money. I, I think someone might. <laughs> but, but not me. Yeah. Um, but, I don't know. I, I think that to really make it work, I've had to put a lot more of my time into it. And I'm, I'm, I'm having a great time. And you've had family members that have made it work. So it's perhaps, sure. you know, to you, living the life of an artist is a bit more you know, realistic than if you were to become a, a banker, perhaps. Yeah, or I don't think like, that, my, I think my family would have disowned me if I had gotten a real yeah. job. And your dad played drums in Bad Company, yes, correct? Yes, yes, and No free. big deal. No, no big, big deal. deal. And no. your sister, uh, Jemima Kirk, correct, was in the show Girls yes. and a bunch of other stuff. Yeah. Um. So has it been great growing up in that sort of, environment like I mean, inspiring it's, it's in any way absolutely or? inspiring in both negative and positive ways yeah. <laughs> um but i'm very grateful for how i grew up i, I love my family so much and uh yeah they're they're a colorful bunch mm -hmm. cool so your, your music has a country feel to it but maybe not the typical quote country music people might assume or hear on the radio today so did you grow up with classic country albums around? What sounds uh, do you tap into or, or do you go to to inspire your music? Well, uh, as Trapper mentioned, my dad was in classic rock groups, so I grew up listening to a lot of that. Uh, we had moved from England to New York when I was four, so I kind of was always fascinated by America because I was living in America. It was this new place. Um, so I started listening to a lot more American rock and roll Laurel Canyon stuff, and then that was my foray into the birds, which kind of led me to Graham Parsons, and then through Graham Parsons, I got into a lot of more classic country. Um, and now I feel like I'm listening to very contemporary country. My last record, Lady for Sale, which came out on Third Man in 2022, was like an 80s country-inspired record. Um, I never thought that I would be listening to that music. I didn't grow up listening to country radio, uh, so it wasn't necessarily nostalgic for me, but then I just started listening to a lot of 80s and 90s country. I hear some, like, Shania in there. Oh, like yeah. Garth, well, she, she crossed Brooks over. And Faith Hill and Shania Twain and, and Garth Brooks or Chris Gaines, as I like to say, really crossed over into yeah. the uh, the radio stations I was listening to when I was younger. Yeah, well, I grew up uh, in the country and my bus driver, I lived, I lived like at the end of a bus route 
And so I was the last kid off the bus, and he blared, like, 90s country, like Randy Jackson, Garth Brooks, like, all yeah. the classic storytellers, you know? Yes. And that, that's ultimately what I feel sort of missing from some of the contemporary, you know, big country uh, music of today. But thank you, Lola, oh, for, for bringing your so Yeah, just one more question. Yeah. No, it's not on this one. It's oh. just coming to mind, but... um. So the sound is one thing, but I also want to talk about your costumes. Because just like acting, you have a whole costumes for your performing. Yes. So uh, do these boots have a name? I know you like to name your boots. Uh, <laughs> these boots, I just, uh, they're from this company called Fraulein. I actually copied Margot Price because she had this pair. And when I was in her wardrobe with her, I was like, those I was stunned by their beauty. For those who cannot see these boots, because you're listening, you'll have to, the to radio, see the video. They to are see like these the boots. most gorgeous. I, the color I've never even seen a color this gorgeous. Um, and then this suit that I'm wearing right now is actually made to look like. Uh, am I allowed to say say a part of the female anatomy on the radio? Absolutely. It's yeah. it's, it's based on a vulva. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, love it. And I just was taken by it. But yes, I love wearing pink and glitter and all sorts of feminine things, and it really helps me kind of shift from you know, who I am personally and to who I want to be on stage. Well, thank you for sharing who you want to be on stage with us today at the Sir <laughs> Shop. <laughs> thank you so much, Thank guys. you, Lola. This thank is you. great. That was Lola Kirk joining us for Live at Lake Effect, accompanied by Josh Kaler on the pedal steel and electric guitar. Lola Kirk's new EP, Country Curious, is out now. Be sure to head to wuwm.com and our YouTube page to see her performing three original songs at the Lake Effect Surf Shop. That video is done by Visionary Studios. Milwaukee musician Trapper Shep and myself are the executive producers of Live at Lake Effect, with sound engineering done by WUWM's Jason Reavy. New episodes of Live at Lake Effect are released monthly, and be sure to check out our past episodes featuring Willie Porter, Raina, Abby Jean, and much more. And Live at Lake Effect wraps up today's show. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. If you've missed any of today's conversations or you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, simply download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. And one more reminder, today is primary election day in Wisconsin. The polls are open until 8. You can find more information about how to vote, what you'll see on the ballot, and how to find your polling place at wuwm.com and look for the voter guide. We'll share the results on tomorrow's show, plus learn about some of the quirkiest museums that we have here in Wisconsin. That's tomorrow at noon on Lake Effect, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. NPR.